From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. The theme of this week's show is gratitude, and it includes three true personal stories of gratitude recorded at a live event at New York's Lincoln Center, featuring Jamie Bernstein, Malachi McCourt, and Mihai Grunfeld. There's a pure, present tense rigor to gratitude. It requires discipline. It's a practice. I'm 88 years old, and I am in what the Irish call the departure lounge. Once, only once, did my mother open the locks of her memory to tell me a story about Auschwitz. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Stephen Lewis shares some hard-earned wisdom about the uses of terrible first drafts. However ugly, however scary, ridiculous, ungrammatical, painfully embarrassing that first draft might be, it will be there the next day when you boot up the computer or open the notebook. Something real to work with. That's coming up next, right here on Read 650. I hit a rough patch in my life a couple of years ago, and on the edge of despair, I phoned my niece Jane to vent and to seek some fresh perspective. Jane, who is honest and kind and wise beyond her years, listened patiently while I unloaded my frustrations and grief. Then she assigned me a task that changed my outlook and my life. You should start every day, she said, by writing down five things you're grateful for. Beginning that gratitude journal was an exercise that altered my thinking, shifting my focus away from what I wish for to what I have. Logging those first five things was easy. My partner, a hot shower, birdsong, blue sky, fresh coffee. But I soon realized that thinking about gratitude makes it grow, displacing darkness and negativity. Gratitude really is the key to a happy life. Like all of us, Jamie Bernstein has had her ups and her downs. And as part of Carnegie Hall Spring Festival, she shared some of them with us at our special gratitude event presented at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. Here's Jamie Bernstein on stage before a full house reading her personal essay, Gratis. By now, in my mid-60s, I've journeyed along the familiar human landscape of ups and downs, marriage, death of parents, childbirth, twice, breast cancer, twice, divorce, professional failures and successes, the myriad mile markers. There are advantages to reaching this age. For example, to have ceased being an erotic object to men. No more lascivious glances, wolf whistles, or subway feel-ups. There is power in knowing you can make yourself invisible in public, becoming just another generic, diminutive, middle-aged woman darting along in her dark colors, 
smoke gray ninja. <laughs> I've occasionally mused that another romantic relationship might possibly still be out there waiting for me. I have curiosity and energy. I can pull myself together, look good enough, even if it does take, as my friends are tired of hearing me say, twice the effort for half the results. <laughs> but in the next breath, I'd wonder, how would I feel about putting this irreversibly deteriorating body of mine back in action? And would I even remember how stuff worked? Maybe I'm better off with the morning snuggles of my dog, who in almost all respects is the best bed companion I've ever had. <laughs> On holidays, my extended family and all our dogs nestle together up at the old place in Connecticut. Thanksgiving is our favorite. No religion, no presents, just close kin, lots of food, and all the heartfelt thank yous. Next best is Passover, the Jewish Thanksgiving, featuring more family, feasting, and thanks, albeit tinged with those problematic assertions about being the chosen people. Everyone's favorite Seder song is Dayenu, translated as, it would have been enough. An excerpt, if he had split the sea for us and had not taken us through it on dry land, Dayenu. If he had taken us through the sea on dry land and had not drowned our oppressors in it, Dayenu. And so on for many verses, none of which we could ever properly reproduce in Hebrew but oh, how heartily we chimed in on the catchy da da yenu, da da yenu chorus. My life has been exceptionally full lately. At least a hundred da yenu verses of more than enough. So I don't ask for additional goodies. I lean toward thank you, not please, in my prayers. Anyway, I don't subscribe to begging a deity for favors. Then, the unexpected, unprayed-for thing happened. A person came back into my life, a person from four decades ago. Once this thunderbolt of reconnection was upon me, it seemed inevitable, essential, and I did remember how stuff worked. <laughs> my body, my rickety old body, had found its completing peace. Like the two rocks I found once on the beach that surprised me by suddenly and silkily conjoining when I slid their irregular surfaces against each other in just a certain way. When we're suffused in the goodness of life, we have the overwhelming urge to thank somebody Yet I don't really believe that some discrete entity is arranging my circumstances. I sense it more as the universe wheeling around for no reason or for reasons far beyond my understanding and depositing me, for a while at least, in the light-drenched place where I currently find myself. There's a pure 
present tense rigor to gratitude. It requires discipline. It's a practice. The trick for me now is to embrace this new embarrassment of riches, to repel the toxic shadow of, do I deserve this? That shadow can shut a heart right down. I'll try to keep out of my own way, accept what fell to earth and landed in my lap, unasked for, unpaid for, gratis. Jamie Bernstein is an author, broadcaster, filmmaker, and concert narrator. She travels extensively, speaking about music as well as about her father, Leonard Bernstein. And her award-winning documentary, Crescendo, The Power of Music, is now viewable on iTunes. Jamie's memoir, Famous Father Girl, was published by HarperCollins. And you can learn more at her website, jamiebernstein.net. Malachi McCourt knows a great deal about both hardship and about gratitude. He was born in Brooklyn, but from age three was raised in Limerick, Ireland. He returned to New York at age 20 and worked as a longshoreman, a truckloader, and a dishwasher until he became an actor, a career that took him to Broadway, off-Broadway, soap operas, TV movies, and feature films. Malachi is also a gifted and prolific writer, and here he is reflecting on life and love and a few other things with Every Breath You Take. Two people die every second in our world. That's 120 every one minute. In the five minutes allotted me here on the Reed 650 stage, 600 people will have died. I didn't do it. (laughs) I'm 88 years old, and I am in what the Irish call the departure lounge. And when I awake in the morning, and indeed at any time, and perceive a ceiling in my purview, I breathe a thankful sigh and lounge for as long as necessary, and then I arise, grateful to be alive. However, if there is a coffin lid within six inches of my nose, it will probably occur to me there's no point in attempting to get up and pretending to be alive. So what is gratitude all about? First, I am grateful that my parents did what is sometimes referred to as it. (laughs) If my parents didn't do it, I wouldn't be here today. Second, most of us begin life when some stranger gives us a whack on the arse to jumpstart our breathing. A person living to 80 will take 673 million breaths up from the 960 breaths he or she will take in the average hour. I am grateful for the first breath of life. Third, I am grateful that strange fate placed me in Brooklyn, New York, on the date of my birth, the 20th of September, 1931. Instead of the transatlantic crossing to Ireland, where our family was bedeviled by disease, despair, and child death, in Ireland, we were poverty-stricken, 
Now, poverty is a disease that motivates people like me to be resourceful, cunning, devious in the survival game of life. Some of us acted like tough guys, as did my brother Frank. He was gruff, fearless, and even though of slight build, he intimidated bigger, tougher kids who were bullies. I opted for the smiling charmer route, <laughs> as I had that rare physical quality among the Irish of having all my teeth <laughs> shiny and white. The women liked my bright, shining face, my respectful attitude, not knowing that behind this charming bio was me figuring out what I could gain from the encounter. Pennies, sweets, cakes. So I'm grateful I learned to survive. Mostly, though, I am filled with gratitude for finding love with my beloved Diana. Gratitude seems such a mild word in our lexicon of our romance. In the maleness of Irish history, expressing love could be considered sissyish, not to mention weak, except when referring to a sports team or where to get the best pint of Guinness Stout. <laughs> Irishmen never express love for their spouses or for whatever blessings she brings to their lives. Neither do they ever refer to their wives by name. They say, she is always late with my tea. She never does my shirts right. She's always complaining about me having a pint. But I am eternally grateful to Diana. I'm also grateful for the companionship of my three brothers, Frank, Mike, and Alfie, and the affection, the peace, the love we found in each other before they died. I am blessed with four grown offspring, Siobhan, Maliki, Connor, and Cormac, all who give my heart a warm embrace when I think of them. I adore my stepdaughter, Nina, who opened up my mind to developmental disabilities with her warrior-like reaction to the horrors of institutional life at Willowbrook. I delight at being a grandfather to nine human beings, each of whom warms my heart. At the end of the day, I'm grateful that I live among people who tolerate books, essays by an uneducated, semi-literate lover of family, admirer of mountains, and delighter of living one day, one hour, one breath at a time. Maraki McCourt worked as a radio talk show host in New York City. He's published articles in many periodicals, including National Geographic and the New York Times, and he's the author of five books. He's also the recipient of numerous awards, including the Irish American Writers and Artists Eugene O'Neill Award. He lives in New York City. Mihai Grunfeld is the son of parents who had each lost their original spouses in Nazi concentration camps. Those two people survived to escape the horror and deprivation of that experience, and they made a new life in Romania, where Mihai was born and raised. His parents focused on the future, avoiding talk of the past, except once. This is writer Mihai Grunfeld 
on stage at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, reading his essay, The Gift. Once, only once, did my mother open the locks of her memory to tell me a story about Auschwitz. I was 10, and it happened quite unexpectedly, like a precious gift. A Sunday morning after breakfast, I was on my way out to play when I heard Mama's voice from the bedroom. Mishika, please come here. She's sitting on a carpet, leaning against the wall with a soft pillow behind her back, holding a notebook on her lap. Sit down here with me. I want to teach you the Hebrew alphabet. No, now? Please, come and sit. Bright sunlight pours in, lighting up the white crumpled sheets of my parents' unmade beds. Through the open window, I see the top of the chestnut trees. Mama puts her arm around my shoulders and gently draws me closer to her. I feel her warm arm against my skin and snuggle in. She opens the notebook and draws a few strange letters. These letters don't mean much to me, so I ask, Mama, would you tell me something about the concentration camps? As if waiting for something, she remains quiet. I don't dare move. The warm sunlight pours in through the open windows. Mama puts the notebook on the carpet and pulls me even closer. The morning air feels still around me. I can barely hear her soft, dreamy voice, despite the perfect stillness, and I don't dare look at her, afraid that she would stop. I was taken to Auschwitz during the summer of 1944 and spent the winter in a wooden barrack without any warm clothes. During the day, I worked in a factory a long way from the barracks. I was hungry all the time. A faint smile appears on Mama's face as she continues. I was so hungry that I even risked my life to get a bit of extra food. Mama's voice perks up a little. One night, I got up and sneaked out of the barrack. I walked a few steps toward the fence that surrounded the camp, and then I crawled to the guards so the guards in the high post would not see me. A friend had told me about a spot where, through a hole under the barbed wire, I could get out. What if the guards saw you? They would have shot me, but I didn't care. I crept slowly into the field by the camp. It was early winter. I started digging the half-frozen ground with my fingers, and eventually, I found a potato. I wiped it clean on my uniform and bit into it. As the peas warmed in my mouth, I chewed. It tasted really good, and I kept it in my mouth for a long time before I swallowed. At this moment, Mama turns toward me with a smile. Have you ever tasted a raw potato? No. She stands up walks to the pantry and returns with a small potato and a knife. She sits down by me 
and slowly peels the potato, lost in her thoughts, so solemn I don't dare whisper a word. Then she cuts a thin slice, slice and puts it in her mouth. She also cuts me a small piece. It tastes starchy to me, mostly bland and raw. I look at, mama, at, look, I look at Mama's face as she eats it, very slowly. I expect her to cry, but she doesn't. She's somewhere else, far away. That potato tasted so good, she says, I promised myself that if I survived and ever got out, I would eat one raw potato every day. I look at Mama. Have you been eating a raw potato every day? No, of course not, she says softly. I don't want to remember anymore what happened there. I snuggle up to her warm and soft body, hide my tears under her arm, and we remain quiet, looking out the window. At 19, Mihai Grunfeld fled communist Romania, making his way to Israel, Italy, Sweden, and Canada in search of a home in the West. Settled in the United States, he obtained his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley and worked for years as a professor of Spanish and Latin American literature at Vassar College. His published books include the memoir, Leaving, Memories of Romania, and his novel was adapted into a play entitled The Dressmaker's Secret, which enjoyed a month-long sold-out run in New York City. He lives with his family in Poughkeepsie, New York, where he continues to write and chairs the Lifelong Learning Institute at Vassar College. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati Mayer. Our announcer is Fran Tuno. Our chief technology officer and troubleshooter is Sarah Caldwell. And our show was produced by Jim Rustic. We'll be back with Stephen Lewis and Between the Lines right after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from the National Arts Club, whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in fine and performing arts. Feature programs focus on all disciplines of the arts, and the National Arts Club hosts both members-only and weekly free public events, including exhibitions, theatrical and musical performances, along with lectures and readings. Learn more at nationalartsclub.org. During a lifetime spent on his craft as a poet, memoirist, essayist, and novelist, and as a teacher and mentor, Stephen Lewis understands as well as anyone can that writing is largely about rewriting, but that you have to start somewhere. On today's Between the Lines segment, Steve shares his thoughts about the importance of a terrible first draft. Bruno Bettelheim, in his almost unreadable 500-page doorstopper, the uses of enchantment, suggests that those gruesome early fairy tales like Grimm's and Mother Goose were not, and are not, nearly as gruesome as any child's frightening creations of the imagination. And as such, even the most grisly of grisly fairy tales serves as a practical tool in children's development. They enable kids to see what frightens them, which then allows them to work out their own unique ways to ward off the trolls, 
the ogres, the child-eating witches. Same thing goes with writing and writers. Poem, story, memoir, novel, whatever. The blank page is a monster any way you approach it. And as Bettelheim might suggest, without form or substance, the monster is all around you, behind your back, on your shoulder, outside the window, under the bed, in the closet, under the bridge, threatening you, blocking your path, telling you you're weak, worthless, that you have nothing to say, that you simply cannot write to save your life. Go find a job that requires no creativity and low intelligence. So what's to do? Drag the ogre out into the daylight. Sit your ass in the chair and, as Eliot advised in East Coker, without hope, without love, and without thought, put the first words that come to mind up on the blank screen or on that pristine sheet of paper. Then add a couple of lines or sentences, then stanzas or paragraphs, and don't stop until you have something to work with, a page, two pages, whatever, is probably enough to get going. But I'd suggest writing the whole ugly first draft without looking back. Most important of all, though, however ugly, however scary, ridiculous, ungrammatical, painfully embarrassing that first draft might be, it will be there the next day when you boot up the computer or open the notebook. Something real to work with. Of course, there must be a next day, and a next, and a next. And no matter how many nexts you have in front of you, the battle never ends. It just goes on and on as you become more faithful and courageous, a warrior against all the ogres lurking under your desk. Stephen Lewis is a longtime freelancer and longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty. The author of several books and many op-eds in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere, he's a contributing writer at Talking Writing Magazine, and he's senior editor and literary ombudsman for Read 650. His new novel, The Lights Around the Shore, was published by Moonshine Cove. And you can learn more at stephenlewiswriter.com. If you have some thoughts to share on writing or the writing life, share them with us in your 650-word Between the Lines submission. That's two double-spaced pages, by the way. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and while you're there, check out the open submission calls for upcoming shows to see what might inspire you. And as with all your submissions, they can certainly be original, but excerpts from your previously published work are also very welcome. That's our show for this week. Thank you again to writers Jamie Bernstein, Maliki McCourt, Mihai Grunfeld, and Stephen Lewis. If you like what we do, please share this episode with a friend. Please also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Thanks again for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.